0: Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. I think when we're thinking about
1: switching from one agent to another, we have to really think about how to plan this out. Today, Drs. Andrew Kirkendall and John Mascarenas joined the podcast to discuss JEC inhibitor drug choice and dosing strategy in patients with myelofibrosis in this PV Roundup Special Spotlight. All opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the views of this educational initiative's supporters.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. John Mascarenes, the Director of Center of Excellence for Blood Cancers and Myeloid Disorders at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And with me here today is my friend, Dr. Andrew Kuykendel from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. We would like to share with you our thoughts about JAK inhibitor drug choice and dosing strategy when managing patients with myelofibrosis. We all understand that JAK inhibitors are valuable treatment options for patients with myelofibrosis, but we want to talk about how to optimize that in our patients today. So for the first question, Andrew, in your practice, what factors do you consider when it comes to drug choice and dosing?
0: Yeah, so I think it's it's important to understand, you know, what what do we have at our at our fingertips in terms of JAK inhibitors, and so you know, right now we have three approved JAK inhibitors. Um, you know, hopefully in the near future we will have four. Um, but when we think about kind of the differences between those JAK inhibitors, we think you have to think about patient specific factors and um, you know disease specific factors as well as what is the 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 drug that we're we're looking at. What does that bring to the table, and how does that differ from maybe the other options we have, and so. I think first off, we, we try to see what we're trying to accomplish with the individual patient we have in front of us. And and oftentimes, we're using jack inhibitors for things such as splenomegaly and, and disease-related symptoms. Um, but we know that there's more to myelofibrosis and treating myelofibrosis than just that. And so we often often are dealing with patients that have maybe uh, anemia or low platelets. Uh, they may have um, other symptoms that are ongoing that we need to take into account, other comorbidities. And, and those types of factors may kind of select for which JAK inhibitor I think is most optimal for that specific patient. So, in
2: 2023, what is your go-to JAK inhibitor for first line of therapy? What is your decision point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, so by and large, I think ruxolitinib is really the the go-to, right? So, that was approved in 2011. We certainly have a ton of experience with it, Um, really quite well tolerated. It's something that we know is is really the only JAK inhibitor that's shown to have a true survival benefit uh, based on the comfort studies. Um, and so th- that survival benefit certainly isn't across the board for every myelofibrosis patient, but certainly I think it can be uh, extrapolated for patients that would have otherwise been eligible for the comfort study. So patients that are higher risk disease, splenomegaly, uh, disease-related symptoms, those, those are the patients that I think they're going to, to, to certainly benefit from ruxolitinib. I think there are some caveats there um, as far as where where I don't think ruxolitinib may be, may be the optimal choice, right? So I think certainly patients that have problematic anemia, maybe requiring transfusions, patients with platelet counts that are less than 100,000, certainly less than 50,000, that's where I may start to have some pause and say, maybe there's some other options that, that may be better. So, in, in the patient
2: with myelofibrosis and thrombocytopenia that has spleen and symptom burn and you're trying to address that with the JAK inhibitor, what, what would be your first line of therapy in those patients?
0: So I think it's still it's still not com- completely clear, because I think we have data with ruxolitinib going from fifty to 100,000 platelets, that maybe we can dose this more optimally than it was um, per the label, right? So I think you can certainly uh, think about dosing this at 10 milligrams twice a day, as opposed to five, which would be what the label suggests. And and that's something that has been associated with better spleen and symptom responses. You now, that being said, fadratinib, which, which was approved as the second JAK inhibitor, uh, in the Jakarta study, actually enrolled patients down to platelet counts of 50,000 or more and and has good response data in patients that have platelets between 50 and 100,000 and, and pres- presumably maybe a little bit better than ruxolitinib, uh at that dosing level. But again, you still run into anemia and thrombocytopenia with you know, Then you have pacritinib, which again, accelerated approval about a year ago um, in 2022. And this has certainly much more robust data in the thrombocytopenic patient population. So, certainly in Persist2, um, you know, this was enrolling a patient population with less than 100,000 platelets. Uh, and then the ongoing Pacifica study is looking at, at patients with less than 50,000 platelets. So this is an agent that can really be leveraged in low platelet groups, dosed optimally. Uh, and when you do kind of these, these subgroup analyses and you really compare, um, you know, pacritinib versus ruxolitinib uh, in the lower, patient po- lower platelet uh, patient population, pacritinib do- does seem to be associated with better outcomes with the caveats that maybe ruxolitinib wasn't dosed optimally in those, in those studies. Excellent. So, I mean, I think you gave a great overview
2: of the treatment decisions when approaching a patient with, with myelofibrosis, first-line jak inhibitor therapy. You have uh, pacritinib, which is clearly labeled for less than 50,000. I really don't think the other drugs compete in that, in that patient population. That's really an unmet need up until March of 2022. And then you have this gray zone, 50 to 100,000, you know, I think you summarize it really nicely. One could use ruxolitinib and try to titrate up to 10 milligrams twice daily. I, I find that sometimes difficult to maintain. Fedratinib does have the approval and could be used up front based on the Jakarta study in the 50 to 100,000 platelet patient population as well. Um, and the Persist 2 did include those patients uh, with pacritinib, and, and those patients fared very well too. So it gives you three different options. I personally prefer procritinib in those patients because I find it easier to dose. You dose to 200 milligrams twice daily, um, and, and you, you rarely have to uh, attenuate the dose for treatment-emergent adverse events of anemia or thrombocytopenia. In fact, you know as you know, the 25% of patients with procritinib actually attain a clinical improvement uh, for anemia in the persist too. So there is even the potential for anemia response. Um, likely due to ACVR1 inhibition as shown by steve and and colleagues. Um, I, I think the, the challenge we have is, it's a good challenge, we have a number of JAK inhibitors. We have data to go from RUX to start with 2-fidratinib based on the Jakarta 2, um, or even to pacritinib based on Persist um, 2. But what we don't really have is data um, starting with fidratinib, for example, and then um, going to, to Ruxolitinib. Um so I, I think naturally, fidratiny, which I, I still think is an excellent jack inhibitor, really affords spleen and symptom benefit, still um, sits um, probably most comfortably as a second line agent, uh, particularly when the platelets are are above fifty thousand to hundred thousand um, so I, I think we you know we've conveyed to the audience that platelet count is a um, is a decision point in terms of um, uh, selecting the appropriate JAK inhibitor. You brought up the point about anemia, um, and uh, mamelotinib has created a developmental pathway, uh, likely with an approval this summer, uh, for patients with spleen and symptom burden um, and anemia, although we don't know what the label will look like. Um, and probably important to point out to the viewers that the, the current labels for Ruxalinib, fedratinib and pacritinib were agnostic to line of therapy, so they could be used upfront or in subsequent lines of therapy. Um, and pacritinib um, also is endorsed by the NCCN guidelines uh, as a second-line therapy for patients who uh, fail uh, or lose response to, to ruxolitinib or, or fedratinib for that matter, um, as initial therapy. So a large selection, uh, or a growing selection, I should say, of JAK inhibitors. Um, and what, one question I have for you is when, when switching from one JAK inhibitor to the other JAK inhibitor um, so, for example, ruxolitinib to fedratinib, um, and ruxolitinib to pacritinib. What is your uh, what is your approach to that transition?
0: Yeah, so I think that's that's an interesting question because that's something we haven't really haven't really studied effectively. Um, you know, we know there's a, a risk with with stopping ruxolitinib uh, of this kind of ruxolitinib withdrawal uh, syndrome that can kind of mimic a cytokine release type syndrome and. And I think personally, I run into that a lot with patients uh, of mine that get hospitalized unexpectedly you know, at, at, at hospitals that maybe don't have a uh, um, you know, good understanding of myelofibrosis. And so naturally, they hold ruxolitinib as patients are hospitalized. And, and two to three days later, patients feel much worse. And so I think when we're thinking about switching from one agent to another, we have to really think about how to plan this out. And, I, and I, it, you know, my understanding is that pacritinib and fedradinib have much longer half-lives than ruxolitinib. And so switching directly from one to the other may not be able to bridge that gap. Of, of when the jack inhibitor is out of the system for when the next one's in the system. And so I think there's a few ways of doing this one. You could certainly think about kind of titrating off of ruxolitinib, you know, uh, and and maybe mitigating that with some steroids to help with some of these cytokine releases symptoms and then switching to a new one. I've even heard the thought of maybe overlapping doses for a couple days, maybe minimizing the ruxolitinib dose, overlapping for one or two days to allow the fadradinib or the procretinib to, to get into the system. But I think these are areas where, as you are making this switch, it's something you really need to counsel patients very effectively on the on the risk of this, and and certainly monitor patients closely as they're switching from one JAK inhibitor to another, um, because what we've learned is is certainly these symptoms of cytokine release that that can occur with Rux discontinuation are, can easily be mitigated by restarting Ruxolitinib, right? And so, I think if if it's something you're aware of, you're certainly not going to run into to too many issues as long as it's something you're prepared for.
2: Excellent. Um, you know, and as you know, I, I see a lot of second opinions from patients who have seen you looking for some expert advice, so I'm always happy to jump in there and, and provide that for them. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that comes up often is, um, is what are the differences in toxicity profiles um, of the JAK inhibitors? So, if you were to summarize for the viewer, Andrew, uh, RUX, for drat- and Pacritinib, are there any distinctions from a tox profile?
0: Yeah, so so obviously down in Florida, we think a lot about care of the patient. I know up in New York, a lot of times they're focused more on just kind of pushing as hard as we can, but we often are talking about symptoms and how best to mitigate some of these things. And so, you know, when you think about ruxolitinib, a lot of the side effects we think about with rux are really long-term side effects. So things like increased risk of, 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 of shingles reactivation, uh, increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancers, maybe weight gain in some patients, not so much in myelofibrosis patient population, more in PV population. Ah, uh, but we think about and bocritinib. They certainly have a more distinct side effect profile. They they often one of the they they inhibit Flt3, um, and with Flt3 inhibition, we often see a lot of gastrointestinal side effects, things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, within the Jakarta study, we noticed that there was a significant amount of nausea uh, and diarrhea. But I would say that those patients were probably not optimized from a prophylaxis standpoint, or or a guidance on on how to take the medication. And so what we've then found out in in subsequent phase three studies with fidratinib, is that if you take the fidratinib with a high fat meal, you use appropriate anti-nausea prophylaxis, this really can be, that you can really mitigate the, the the GI toxicity and this can be a quite manageable drug to give. Pacritinib is quite similar, it does hit FLT3 as well. I've seen probably somewhat more mild GI toxicity with pacritinib, but again, as far as uh, like educating patients and, and counseling them and making sure that they have anti-diarrheals uh, at, their, at their fingertips, maybe not prophylactically using those, but having those if they need them, and then maybe taking an anti-nausea medication prophylactically for the first four to six weeks or so can really mitigate some of those GI side effects. But that, that is probably the biggest distinction between RUX and and and, fidradin and pacritinib. Excellent. And then, of course,
2: um, lastly, there is a black box warning specifically for fadratinib, only for fadratinib, for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Um, so just to remind people to check the thiamine level, vitamin B1, and replete, check probably every three months and replete as necessary, or make your life easier and just give a multi, multi-complex uh, vitamin B supplement. And that really uh, rarely becomes an issue, if, if ever. So uh, easy, easy to manage toxicities, uh, rarely a reason to discontinue for the GI uh, or uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy. So I know we're at the top of the time here for our discussion. I really appreciate you joining me, Andrew. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching this. I hope you found this discussion informative and useful for treating patients with myelofibrosis. Thanks very much.
1: And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like this, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa flash briefing, medical news roundup, but just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Drs. Kukendahl and Mascarenas. Please join us for another episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.